Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're in the book of Acts, and we're continuing with our study there, and we're in chapter 26. We'll be starting at verse 9, and as we like to do, we always want to open with a word of prayer. Leslie? Thank you, Lord, for this time we have together and for the many blessings you've given to us more than we know. Um, Thank you for this opportunity to learn more about your word and for your finished work on the cross it is finished and help us to learn more how to better serve you through what we learn tonight bless mark and this time in jesus name amen amen and welcome mark well thank you it's great to be back with everyone i hope everyone has been enjoying this look at Acts as much as I have. It's certainly been an eye-opening experience to go a little bit deeper than the typical Sunday morning Bible class in most churches. We've been looking at the trials of Paul, which are basically contained within chapters 23 to 26 of, of the book of Acts, and we now have kind of a final review of the trials that have gone before King Agrippa, who has come down to Caesarea to visit Festus, and we will go ahead and go through this uh, discourse of Paul, and then we're going to probably back up. There's so many important principles that are totally uh, ignored uh, found in these chapters of Acts that we do want to go back and look at them a little bit more in detail. But Paul has just welcomed King Agrippa and acknowledged that he is a student of Jewish customs and and disputed questions and asked for a a patient hearing. Let's uh, back up a little bit and read verses 4 through 8, please. The way I have lived since my youth and the life I have led among my own people from the beginning and later at Jerusalem is well known to all Jews. They have been acquainted with me for a long time and can testify, if they wish, to my life lived as a Pharisee, the strictest sect of our religion. But today I stand before trial, I stand trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. The twelve tribes of our people fervently worship God day and night in the hope that they will see that promise fulfilled. 
It is because of this hope, Your Majesty, that I stand accused by the Jews. Let me ask why you, above all, who are Jews, should find it hard to believe that God raises dead men to life. Great, thank you. In most English translations, that last verse uh, it reads that why is it incre- why should it be incredible that God would raise the dead? But the the literal meaning of the Greek there is that God should raise uh, or that God raises dead people. So it's a it's more of a general statement. It's certainly plural and and, and not singular. But what we've been seeing throughout the book of Acts is the apostles pointing out over and over again that God, through the gospel and through the Great Commission, is fulfilling all of the Old Testament promises to Old Testament physical Israel that in her last days they would be raised from the dead. As a people, we have seen that they are dead. The second temple never had God's presence within it. After they came back from Babylonian captivity, they rebuilt a a shadow of Solomon's temple, but they didn't have the Ark of the Covenant, which serves as the throne of God. They didn't have that to put in there. And when they dedicated the temple, they did not visibly see the Spirit of God descend and enter into the Holy of Holies as they had when the tabernacle was dedicated at Mount Sinai or when Solomon's temple had been dedicated. And so the the physical kingdom of Israel was spiritually dead. They had violated their covenant with Yahweh over and over and over again, and the prophets give us a gruesome detail as to how far they had departed from God, how they refused to depend on God, how they refused to look to God as the giver of all good gifts, and they sought the favor of earthly empires and earthly emperors, much the way Americans today look to the federal government to be the giver of all good gifts rather than to uh, God and Jesus Christ. Uh, So, um, sadly, uh, we see too many parallels there. But we have to understand that the physical nation of Israel was spiritually dead. Okay? And any group that would claim to be the continuation or the rebirth of physical Israel, uh, I mean, they they would still be spiritually dead, separated from God. So we're looking at Paul's view of resurrection. We've already seen some of the things uh, that contrast his new understanding with that of the Pharisees who were hoping for the, a physical resurrection. But... When Paul is talking about raising dead people, he's not he's not talking about us uh, who live today waiting hundreds or thousands of years in a non-existent state so that our physical corpses can be brought up out of the ground. That's that is not, I believe, in Paul's mind, and we'll we will uh, demonstrate that by tying his writings back to Old Testament prophecies of the resurrection to demonstrate this. Um, but, well, and it's sad for those Christians who who even believe that, because 
Jesus told us, as we saw in the Gospel of John, when we looked at that some months ago, that he who believes in me can never die. So we don't have to go through any kind of separation from God when our physical bodies fail. We are still part of the body of Christ, just as we were before our physical body failed. We have been joined to Christ, we are one with him, and we share in his eternal life based on his righteousness, not on our own. I mean, this is the great news of the gospel. So, when we see these verses like verse 8 about raising dead people, we have to understand that in the book of Acts and in Paul's writings, this is talking about resurrecting the people of Israel from spiritual death. They, they have violated the covenant. They've separated themselves from God through constant, constant sin and violation of the covenant, idolatry, adultery, spiritual adultery, and so on. So this is the message that Paul is preaching, that through spiritual transformation, being joined into Christ spiritually, only then can Israel have any hope of life. It will not be in any physical form at all. And that when this happens, all the nations will be invited to join into God's resurrected uh, spiritual kingdom. Of course, I'm talking all about the last verse that Leslie read there. But verse 6 kind of repeats this. He, He lets it be known that he is a Judean of Judeans, a Pharisee of the Pharisees in verses 4 and 5. And then in verse 6, he repeats what we've seen over and over, that his hope is based on the promises made by God to our fathers. Okay, Not the promises made by Jesus to Christians in America in the year 2014, uh, which is the way we read our Bibles, uh, but... His hope is based on the promises made by God to the fathers. I mean, that's going back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And those promises were to be fulfilled by this spiritual resurrection and the spiritual kingdom and this spiritual land. And these are the exact same promises that are twisted uh, by those who have uh, who have occupied the land of Palestinian families over the last 60 years, just taking it without any compensation, and then continue to inflict even greater injustices than that. These are these promises that are mentioned in verse 6. And Paul is not talking about real estate in Palestine here at all. He's talking about the hope of the resurrection. In verse 7, it is the fulfillment of this promise that our 12 tribes earnestly occupied day and night hope to attain and it is with regard to this hope that I am accused by the Judean, and, and in the context it is the Judean leadership, just as we saw it used that way in the Gospel of John. So, again, we have a huge contrast here between Paul proclaiming the spiritual fulfillment of all the promises made to the patriarchs with those twisted interpretations that attempt to physically interpret those promises made, you know, beginning back in Genesis 12 to Abraham and so on. All right, uh, enough of me. Any other thoughts or comments? I was just going to say uh, on the text that Mark is citing here from 
Acts where it says that this was the promise that God had made to Israel. And oftentimes we have those uh, in some areas of the church who believe that the promises of Israel were cut off when Jesus died on the cross. But he was actually fulfilling promises of Israel, and so were the apostles. And so it's this is a very key and critical point to understand that the hope that they had, as Paul discusses in Acts 28 and verse 20, was the hope of Israel, and it was, of course, the resurrection of the dead. So a very, very key text to understand that his gospel did not sever a relationship from Israel and that this should be recognized uh, as we continue to understand and teach about what resurrection was in the first century, that it was all about fulfilling those promises that God had made to the fathers, as Mark said. Yeah, thank you, William. And this is not just some uh, obscure academic point that has no uh, bearing, because the fact is, is that all of the, the last day's views of the non-dispensational churches, other than ours, of course, <laughs> but all of these other views cannot refute dispensationalism. This is the only view that can demonstrate the complete uh, falseness of, of the dispensational view. So that's why we are harping on this, because it is it is essential and it has not been taught in virtually any church in America uh, at least for the last 150 years and and before then of course they didn't even know about dispensationalism and and so they didn't address it so it is a, an incredibly important point to demonstrate this continuity all through the New Testament of the Old Testament promises uh, I, now I'm repeating myself. Yeah, let me um, also just say a word on that, too, since you brought it up from that perspective. And that is, when tying together Acts 24, 13 through 15, or let's just say verses 14 and 15, with Acts 26, 6 through 8, we get an idea of the imminence of resurrection in other words, fulfilling the promise to Israel. Now, this is key, especially for people who who may be under the impression, and many of them are, that what we see today in the modern state of Israel or the settlement of Israel is the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. This is one of the things that gives the appearance of so much credibility to what's called Christian Zionism. And the support of even Christians, and you have them today asking Christians, Christian churches, to support Israel. Just blatant, open, and what I mean is that settler, that occupation that's going on in, in Gaza today. This is why this is so critical for us to understand. In the 24th chapter of Acts, Paul says, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. So number one, 
we understand that it has to be a gospel. And the gospel that Paul preached was based upon the law and the prophets. Now, the paradigm that claims the law is fulfilled in the cross and at the cross, meaning at that time, at A.D. 30, severs the promise to Israel. And that's what gives rise to dispensationalism and Christian Zionism. Because they recognize, in a passage like Acts 26, 6 through 8 that we're discussing, that that wasn't the end of Israel's promise. And so it causes one group of Christians to totally ignore what God says about them, and it causes the other group to overemphasize it to the extent that it gives validity to some political entity that has no relationship to it, and because Christians do not understand their own Bibles, they buy into it, and the result is what we get today uh, from their point of view. So in, the, in verse 15, he says, I have hope in God. So here again is the hope, but there's only one hope of Scripture. There is no two hopes, no one for Israel and one for Christians, as John Hagee uh, wants to portray. It's simply the one hope, but he says, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be. Now, this is another very key point in the text, and we probably went over this, or at least Mark did, because I may not have been here at the time. But when he says will be, this is taken from a word which is mellow in the Greek. It means to be about to be or on the point of doing something, especially with the infinitive. And we've had uh, many dispensationalists, um, dominionists, and others who deny that this event was imminent claim uh, that this word doesn't mean that. But what Paul is actually saying is this. There is about to be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and of the unjust. So he takes this point of reference from the Old Testament scripture, and one of the only places that I know that the Bible precisely talks about the resurrection of the just and the unjust is Daniel chapter 12. Well, Daniel chapter 12 begins with the affliction of the people of God, which is Matthew 24, verse 21 that is found in the context that says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. In other words, what he does is he posits the great tribulation of Daniel 12 with the resurrection, because the, the next verse from that in Daniel 12:1 is, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to everlasting shame and contempt. Well, there's your just and you're unjust. That's what Paul is quoting in Acts 24, when he says there is about to be a resurrection of the just and of the unjust. And so that hope that is spoken of in Acts 26 through 28 is identical to what Paul is saying in that passage. But he's saying that Israel's promises were about to be fulfilled. They weren't postponed. They weren't pushed down to 1948. They're not ongoing today, but they did extend beyond the cross. It's important for us to see that so we acknowledge that God did fulfill his promises to Israel, that the gospel is the fulfillment of that, but that it did, in fact, come to pass and was completely fulfilled in connection with that first century event known as the destruction of Jerusalem, where he said, all things 
uh, assuredly I say to you, this generation would by no means pass till all those things took place. And it's critical for us to get that message out because until we do, it's going to continue to foment and foster this false belief that Christians have to be supporting a state that has nothing to do whatsoever with what's taught in the Bible. Yeah, that, uh, thank you so much, William. That That's explained much better than I could do it. And that's what we really need to hesitate at the end of action, not just rush through it, because these things are absolutely essential for our day and age for these horrible things that are going on in, in the name of God uh, right now in the Middle East. Excuse me, Mark. I did not catch oh, sure. the verse that he was specifically referring to. Sure. Uh, That's uh, Acts 24, verses 14 and 15. All right. Thank you. Paul had written a letter to the Corinthian church, and in the, what we call 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul describes the resurrection of the dead. I, I'm going to suggest to everyone that Paul did not change his views between the time that he wrote this letter to Corinth and the time that he's making his defense here at the uh, end of, of what we call the book of Acts. And so in, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42, after a lot of preliminary uh, figures of speech and, and things, he says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. I, I think I can boldly speak that all of us have been taught over and over and over again that this is talking about our individual fleshly body. But yet when we look at the trials of Paul, and we look at him quoting the Old Testament prophets, and we're going to go, we're going to spend time going through Ezekiel 37 here, uh, probably next time. That's not at all what's in Paul's mind when he's thinking resurrection. He's thinking of Israel, his, his country. God's chosen kingdom is spiritually separated from God. And he's, his hope is the hope that Israel will be transformed into a spiritual body. And so listen to this again, thinking as Paul would about Israel. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And and it takes on an entirely different meaning, you know, than what we've been told over and over again. But yet, that's not what would have been in Paul's mind at all, uh, what we taught. Now, I'm sure William can clean that up for me here. It's very important that we see that connection. And, of course, First Corinthians 15 is certainly a huge block of text to, to cover. But the, the first verses are very key. And give us the same pattern that we were looking at before. You know, it starts off, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which also I preach to you, which also you've received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preach to you, unless you have believed in vain. Now, these next verses that he quotes, 
For I delivered unto you, first of all, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. Now, he didn't say that he died for our bodies, but he said he died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. So here again is we have 1 Corinthians 15, which is the hope of Israel, resurrection, being tied back to Old Covenant Scripture. This is a post death of Christ text that was that they were yet looking forward to. But the point in 1 Corinthians 15 is it's not a text that's saying all of this was holy future. There's what's called an already and a not yet. And so what Paul is actually saying is is the dead were actually being raised, even at the time he spoke. And that's even indicated in the passage in Acts 26, 6 through 8. But the other point I want to make very briefly is that his context for those first few verses in 1 Corinthians 15 are taken from the prophet Hosea. And in Hosea, the context for death and resurrection, from which Paul is quoting the text, is not physical death, it's not biological death, but it is rather restoration to God, restoration of Israel to God. I want to develop that very quickly, and that is if we just take the few verses in chapter 5, starting in verse 13. When Ephraim saw his sickness, and Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria, and he sent to King Jerob, yet he cannot cure you nor heal you of your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, this is God speaking, he says, will tear them and go away. I will take them away, and no one shall rescue. Now, of course, he's talking about carrying them off into uh, captivity, which signified death of Israel, because they were being separated from the temple, they were being separated from the presence of God. And he says, I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. So that indicates that they're in a state of sin death, and they're not going to be delivered from that until they acknowledge their offense. So he says, then they will seek my face, in their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Now, these next couple of verses in chapter 6 is what really brings it home, and this is, where, this is the context out of which Paul is quoting. He says, come and let us return to the Lord. Now, they, hadn't, they weren't physically dead. They had been separated as a result of being torn by the Lord for their sins, and he said they would not be healed until they returned to him. So he says, for he is torn but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live in his sight. It wasn't a case of being physically dead. It was a case of their being restored. And, of course, that restoration comes through Jesus Christ, whose death was a death to sin and a death for sin, and the Bible says the death that he died, he died unto sin once, and the life that he lives, he lives to God, Romans 6.10, and therefore reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. And that is the death of 1 Corinthians 15, 
And that's why Paul quotes Hosea, because he's quoting from this very text where they were separated from God, cut off, and had to be restored to him, which is resurrection from sin death. That's magnificent. Thank you. <laughs> okay, well, that's we're going to come back to this when we go through Ezekiel 37. Uh, but just we have to drive this in because the, all of these concepts are not something newly created after the cross as an afterthought. But but Paul is constantly thinking of and quoting and seeing the fulfillment of all of the promises made to Israel through the centuries from Abraham all the way through Malachi. Uh, and we need to keep that in mind here as we continue to read his defense. Let's go ahead and read verses uh, 9 through 11, please, back in Acts 26. For my part, I once thought it my duty to oppose the name of Jesus, the Nazarene, in every way possible. That is just what I did in Jerusalem. With the authority I received from the chief priests, I sent many of God's holy people to prison. When they were to be put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time in synagogue after synagogue, I compelled them by force to blaspheme. Indeed, so wild was my fury against them that I pursued them even to foreign cities. All right, thank you. Now, this is repeating, of course, what we've already studied, but, but again, that last verse, in synagogue after synagogue, we see clear, compelling evidence that the early Christian communities existed as subsets of the Judean synagogue communities because that was their they were still there's a continuity through this they didn't make a clean break they could not have afforded in most cases a new copy of the scriptures which would have been priceless those hand copied scrolls in those days so as long as they possibly could the Christians operated as subsets and under the jurisdiction of the Judean synagogue communities. And, and we need to remember, these synagogue communities had not been cut off at the cross or at the day of Pentecost, but God is, is long-suffering, and he, uh, until the temple will be destroyed, all of the Judean nation, all the synagogue communities have this chance to turn back to God to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, just as William went through eloquently, to be cured of their sin problem. So I just wanted to point that out. Any other thoughts here? All right, well, let's go on and read verses 12 through 18, please. On one such occasion, I was traveling toward Damascus, armed with the authority and commission of the chief priests. On this journey, Your Majesty... I saw a light more brilliant than the sun shining in the sky at midday. It surrounded me and those who were traveling with me. All of us fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goad. I said at that, Who are you, sir? And the Lord answered, 
I am that Jesus whom you are persecuting. Get up now and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to designate you as my servant and as a witness to what you have seen of me and what you will see of me. I have delivered you from this people and from the nations to open the eyes of those to whom I am sending you, to turn them from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that through their faith in me they may obtain the forgiveness of their sins and a portion among God's people. All right. Uh, thank you. Uh, this is the third account we have of this event. The Luke related it as it happened in his narrative, and then now Saul has uh, Paul has recapped it twice uh, during his trials. Uh, this is the only account where uh, we learn that all of the party fell to the ground, not just uh, Saul. And I think this is the only one where the agricultural uh, parable exists about kicking against the goads, the sharp pointed stick that you would poke in the back of your ox if he wasn't pulling your cart fast enough. Um, now in verse 17, I will deliver you from the people. I, Leslie read it slightly differently, and the nations. So you see, the the people of Israel are the people in the book of Acts. And and now Luke is writing uh, as a European. He's he's not a Judean, but he he understands the key place that the that the people of Israel hold uh, in in God's plan. And so it's the people and then the other nations uh, that Paul is going to be sent to. Um, but remember, they, they, they could only remain the people if they turned to Jesus Christ before their nation was utterly and completely destroyed. So again, it's... Uh, don't want to confuse anybody. Um why could they not turn to Christ after their nation was destroyed? Well, because they would probably be dead. Well, but assuming they survived, why would God not honor the commitment of someone who was part I'll of another culture? Question. I'll take that question. Great, thank you. Save me. Okay. Um, the answer to that is they could if they did choose to follow God. Uh, however, the point of their being cut off was cutting them off as the natural seed. Cutting them off to the extent that temple worship was no longer acceptable. Genealogical tables were all destroyed. The temple was destroyed. There was no seeking him through the law because there was no salvation for them through that in the first place. And so, granted, some of them were destroyed. A lot of them were. But if they chose to come to him by obedience, uh, any who survived, they certainly could, just as any of them can come to him uh, today. But none okay. can seek him through that old covenant system anymore 
And so their cutting off was more covenantal than it was saying, okay, as an ethnic group, you can never come to me. It was more of a covenant. And that the two coexisted for that time is taught in the parable of Galatians chapter 4, 21 through 31, where, you know, Paul says Abraham had two sons. And so for a time, they both existed in the house of Abraham until Ishmael persecuted Isaac and had to be cast out. Ishmael had the right to inherit because he was the older son, but because he persecuted Isaac, he, he along with um, his mother, had to be cast out. And that's the exact analogy that's being made of Israel in the New Testament, the natural seed. They were persecuting the saints, persecuting Christians. They had killed the Lord and uh, killed some of his apostles and persecuted them as well as the church. And yet they were still in the house of Abraham, if you please, but had to be cast out for the inheritance to come. Again, that casting out was covenantal. It was not individual, but it was covenantal in the sense that those who have the old covenant would no longer be able to approach God through that means. They would have to come individually through the new covenant because it had been opened up to all on an equal basis, Jew and Gentile. Yeah, I'll say it another way. The Judean had priority. The gospel went to the Judean first and then to the other nations. After A.D. 70, the nation is gone. They're just like anybody else. They're no longer a special member of God's chosen people because that covenant has been abrogated and doesn't exist anymore. And so just like the people who choose to be known as Jews today, that's what any Judean survivor would have been like after A.D. 70, which William said. What about the text that I was taught when I was 12 or something in the Lutheran Church that Abraham was saved on account of his faith? Well, that's... that's uh, Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> that, you know, that's an important... That's the important thing. Because the Old Testament scriptures end with Malachi promising that before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, which is this judgment we're talking about, that first Elijah will come and he will turn the heart of the children to the fathers, and the fathers to the children. And this is not talking about, I think, their physical father. It's talking about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who existed in covenant relationship with God before the law of Moses was ever given. You see the contrast as Jesus is going around trying to teach the law uh, the Pharisees were claiming a place in God's presence through perfect law-keeping. I mean, they, they were taking a tenth of their herb planters in their windows and offering it up to God as a tithe. And they were, they were saying, we keep the law so perfectly, we are guaranteed a place in God's kingdom. But that wasn't it at all. You had to go be back beyond the law back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob they were in God's presence through their confidence in God, not through uh, perfect law-keeping. And so this is what Jesus is trying to say in the Beatitudes. The blessed are the poor in spirit, 
who know they're not keeping the law perfectly. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. The Pharisees didn't do that because they had all perfect righteousness already. So, so yes, that, that what you heard back uh, in your Sunday school class was uh, was right. Uh, it was important. Yes, that's the uh, that's the very essence. I can't do any better than that. I'll just kind of repeat just a little bit, very briefly. But that was the point in Romans chapter four, and also in Galatians, was that God had saved Abraham through faith uh, in in terms of the promise, because it was yet still in promise, even though he had said that. But he had justified him by faith apart from the law, uh, and even before he was circumcised. And the point of the New Testament is that all that God was going to save through Christ would likewise be by faith apart from circumcision in the flesh. And that's why he said in Romans 9, 6 through 8, that not all who are of the seed of Abraham are his children. The children of the flesh were not counted as the seed. So that's the point that he's making, and thus in Galatians chapter 3, he said, For all you are all sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Judean nor Greek. There's neither male nor female. There's neither bond nor free. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Okay, thanks, guys. All right. Well, I think we've gone about 45 minutes here. I think we've pretty well covered the points there down through verse 18. So uh, we will try to pick up uh, at this point next time, and then we will, once we get through the narrative of the trial, uh, here at the end of chapter 26, we're going to go back again and look at uh, a couple of other topics, probably uh, Ezekiel 37, and the Hymenaean heresy, which y'all will be <laughs> fascinated. I hope we can have William when we do that one. Okay, great. Hey, that was a great study, and I appreciate everybody's input. That was really fantastic. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.